You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com In every living cell There's a useful tool Containing information in a molecule Hip, hip, hooray for DNA It provides the key To the plants for making everything in you and me A single strand of DNA Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 21st day of February, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of my listeners back and invite them all, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com, ReportageBook.com, AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, and ClimateGate.tv and to also check out those websites which help support and enable this podcast, including zeropointradio.com, cascadiapublicradio.org, where you can pick up and download small file-size, low-bitrate versions of this podcast for people with limited bandwidth, and also archive.org, where you can find backup copies of this podcast going back to episode 70, should you ever have trouble downloading the podcast from our servers. As you may have noticed, this is episode 118 of the Corbett Report, and unlike what was previously advertised at the end of last week's episode, this is not the podcast on whistleblowing. I'm currently working on putting together a very special episode 119 on the subject of whistleblowing, which promises to be one of the most important episodes I have ever put together. So I hope you will definitely stay tuned for that next week. And in preparation for the run-up to that episode, I will be releasing a new documentary on the YouTube channel this week. It's a documentary directed and produced by Paul Verge of Divergent Films and featuring the testimony of 9-11 whistleblower and Wall Street whistleblower Richard Andrew Grove. Now, listeners to The Corbett Report will probably know Richard Grove already because, of course, he was featured as one of the guests in episode 115, and people who are subscribed to the Interviews tab will have already received in their podcatcher the monumental three-way conversation between myself, James Evan Pilato, and Richard Andrew Grove of TragedyandHope.com and PeaceRevolution.org on the subject of the media. If you haven't listened to that interview yet, I highly suggest that you do. It's one of the most fascinating conversations that I have had the pleasure to take part in during my time on The Corbett Report, and it will serve to give a foreshadowing of next week's episode, which will, of course, feature Richard Grove and some of the testimony that will be included in the documentary 2020 Hindsight, Censorship on the Frontline, which again will be being released over the next few days on the YouTube account, youtube.com slash Corbett Report. So if you are not subscribed to my YouTube channel yet or have not subscribed to my video RSS feed, I highly suggest that you do so this week so you don't miss any of the exciting documentary action. 
On another note, I'd like to wholeheartedly thank the seven listeners who have so far contributed to our ongoing fundraising drive to raise the $300 for domain and hosting fees for the Corbett Report for the upcoming year. I would just like to use this opportunity to say how much I appreciate all of those donations and how very much necessary they are. I am not funded by the New World Order. I don't have a George Soros or Rupert Murdoch pipeline. So I very much rely on these funds to help keep this website going. And to the other 8,000 or so listeners who are downloading this podcast on a weekly basis, I'd like to gently remind you that without your support, the Corbett Report will cease to exist. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's Sunday update. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with this Sunday update for the 21st of February 2010. And now for the real news. In our top story this week, a new report from the IAEA raising questions about Iran's stockpiles of enriched uranium has increased tensions in the international community. Although the report is merely a draft and has yet to be approved by the International Atomic Energy Agency's Board of Governors, and despite the the fact that it indicates Iran has yet to enrich uranium sufficient for the creation of a bomb, and despite the fact that the IAEA has not divulged the evidence it used to make its pronouncement, the draft was immediately used as a justification for punitive actions. White House spokesman Robert Gibbs was quoted as saying, quote, We've always said that if Iran failed to live up to those international obligations, that there would be consequences. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went even further. Quote, what is needed now is biting sanctions that have the power to influence the regime, bitter sanctions that have to hit, in a convincing way, the Iranian oil industry imports, exports, and refining. Michel Chosodovsky of the Center for Research on Globalization recently appeared on Russia Today to explain the significance of these developments. I think what is important to understand is that the United States, NATO, as well as Israel are involved and have been involved in planning a war directed against Iran. And what they want is to essentially uh, have the, uh, the support of public opinion, present Iran as a threat to global security uh, due to its alleged uh, nuclear weapons, which it doesn't have. Iran is a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which guarantees member nations the right to develop nuclear technologies for peaceful purposes. Israel, which the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency estimated in 1999 as having between 60 and 80 nuclear weapons, is not a signatory to the treaty. Their government still refuses to acknowledge that Israel is a nuclear power. No sanctions are being suggested against Israel at this time. Two weeks ago, it was revealed that the Obama administration, which had previously called for the eventual abolition of nuclear weapons, is in fact increasing the American military budget for maintaining the U.S. nuclear arsenal to over $8 billion, an increase of more than $700 million from the Bush regime. In other news, initial reports that Austin Kamikaze pilot Andrew Joseph Stack was a member of the Tea Party movement have proven to be baseless speculation. Within hours of Stack's single-engine plane slamming into a government building, Time Magazine, The Washington Post, and New York Magazine all had editorials attempting to link Stack to the Tea Party movement. These accusations have now proven completely unfounded. 
In 2009, the establishment media was caught in a similar situation as Keith Olbermann attempted to link the Holocaust museum shooter James Von Brunn to Ron Paul. Talking Points Memo reports that Von Brunn switched his website domain on June 1st to a man who shares a phone number with a woman who is listed as a Michigan coordinator for former presidential candidate Ron Paul. Mr. Olbermann has yet to explain how such a connection actually links Von Brunn to Dr. Paul. In other developments, Infowars.com is now reporting that a high-level source familiar with the case has confirmed that the FBI knew about the attack ahead of time and had dispatched officers from its Dallas headquarters the day before in order to be in place for the incident. The information validates witness testimony that indicated that emergency personnel were on the scene and waiting to respond before the crash even happened. The one thing I would like to say is that I know the, the fire department got here real fast because they actually had a, an engine sitting over there that just happened to be doing something with hazmat. So they were over here like right away. So I guess I guess that's the one good thing. And we see that, you know, the entire side of the building is on fire. And this was within maybe two minutes of the plane having crashed into it. Um, and already there were feds out there. There were, just, you know, the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force was already there. And I guess it's because, you know, the building's right next door to them. Um, but what was odd is that uh, <clears throat> they were, one one of the FBI agents was filming the building, and the other the other fed was just filming everybody in the crowd. I'm not exactly sure what that even does. But yeah, that's what he was doing. The Christmas Day bombing story continues to unravel, as another key element of that story turns out to have been a fraud. Now, in addition to the State Department's admission that the bomber was deliberately allowed to board the plane, despite being on a terrorist watch list and on the brink of, brink of having his visa revoked, and in addition to customs officials' admissions that they lied when first denying eyewitness accounts of the arrest of a second man from the same flight, now Umar Farouk M M Mutalab's seatmate on the plane has come forward with the information that Mutalab did not even seem to be aware that a fire had started and attempted to help put it out when it was pointed out to him. So when he removed his hands from his pants, fire erupted. And he and um, another passenger who had come over from a couple rows away put, tried to put it out together. So he seemed very surprised and shocked at what was happening like he didn't know. This further confirms eyewitness accounts of Mutala being helped through security by a sharp-dressed man, and reports that someone had been allegedly videotaping Mutala the entire flight, suggesting that Mutala was in fact a participant in a security drill that was flipped live without his knowledge. Finally this week, talk show host Glenn Beck and his employers are scrambling to answer charges that they participated in a coordinated attempt with Republican Party operatives to discredit Texas gubernatorial candidate Deborah Medina in order to halt her meteoric rise in opinion polls ahead of next week's elections. Beck had Medina on as a guest on his program last week ostensibly to discuss her campaign, but the conversation took a bizarre turn when Beck asked her about her position on 9-11 Truth an issue that she had not talked about in her campaign and does not appear in her platform. Do you believe the government was any way involved with the bringing down of the World Trade Centers on 9-11? I, I, don't, I don't have all of the evidence there, Glenn, so I don't, I, I'm not in a place. I have not been out publicly uh, questioning that. I think some very good questions have been raised in that regard. 
Uh, there are some very good arguments, and, and I think the American people have not seen all of the evidence there. So I've, I've not taken a position on that. Earlier this week, footage from the 2008 presidential campaign emerged of Beck's favorite Republican, Sarah Palin, going much further than Medina in actually calling for a new 9-11 investigation. Beck's position was completely undermined, however, when a clip from his television show recently resurfaced online. Let me tell you something. I have questions myself. I had many questions after 9-11. I'd like to know about the whole Sandy Berger thing. Uh, That just seems weird, and it seems to me that Bush and Clinton were in on that one, both sides. I'd like to know about that one. What have I said on this program? You have a responsibility to question your government. A possible reason for Beck's hypocrisy came to light on Thursday when Philip Martin of the Burnt Orange Report documented how Beck's employer, Clear Channel CEO and Chairman Lowry Mays, has donated almost $300,000 to current Texas Governor Rick Perry. Perry's campaign began automated calls to Texan voters within an hour of the Medina interview, decrying her defense of 9-11 questions. It is so far unclear whether Rick Perry will now renounce Sarah Palin's endorsement of his campaign because she has come out so strongly in favor of a 9-11 investigation. Meanwhile, Beck's television program has lost 500,000 viewers per day since the Medina incident, and his program has aired at least five days in a row without commercials in the UK because over 100 advertisers have dropped their sponsorship of his program. Now stay tuned for episode 118 of the Corbett Report podcast, Who Owns Your DNA?, where we explore the undisclosed DNA databases that governments around the world have been maintaining for decades, and we discuss the larger DNA control grid agenda with Greg Nicoletos of We the People Will Not Be Chipped.com. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 118 of the Corbett Report Who Owns Your DNA? By the mid 1990s, DNA testing had become sophisticated enough that law enforcement and criminal detectives everywhere were starting to salivate over the prospect of instantly being able to identify whoever was the perpetrator of any given crime by simply examining the DNA evidence left on the scene. And with these starry-eyed ideals of being able to instantly solve all crime being pushed on society by complicit governments and even more complicit media, the UK implemented a DNA database in 1995. The database was ostensibly, originally at any rate, intended to be used as a crime-fighting tool and as such was only supposed to contain the DNA of criminals. But as one might well imagine, at the time there were those pesky civil liberties groups who were saying that this was the thin edge of the wedge or the beginning of the slippery slope down into the collection of DNA from citizens en masse. And as usual, they were completely correct. Now, the story of how the UK DNA database in particular has become one of the, in fact, the largest in the world, 
and certainly one of the most draconian systems that could be imagined, is a long and very complicated one and involves many twists and turns. But suffice it to say that, at least for the last few years, the Corbett Report has been following this story and has been tracking some of the uh, key events that have taken place. For example, back on September 6th of 2007, I wrote an article entitled The DNA Database with the subtitle Senior UK Judge Calls for Everyone in the UK to Have DNA Entered into Criminal Database. Quote, According to a BBC report today, there are currently no plans by the UK government to store DNA samples of every man, woman, and child in the UK in the National DNA Database. This may come as a relief to those who were concerned by yesterday's report that a senior UK judge has made just such a proposal. According to today's denial, the proposal is not being rejected because it represents a nightmare vision of total government surveillance that George Orwell himself would have been hard-pressed to imagine, but because the plan would create huge logistical and bureaucratic issues, according to a spokesman for the Prime Minister. Lord Justice Sedley made his proposal amid ongoing debates about the UK DNA database, which is the largest in the world and includes over 4 million profiles, including 883,888 profiles of juveniles between the ages of 10 and 17, and even 108 records of youths under 10. End quote. Now, as bone-chilling as those numbers are, we should keep in mind that those come from the relative utopia of 2007, back before the creeping crawl of totalitarian fascism had completely and utterly transformed the DNA database into a tool and a weapon of oppression against every citizen of the UK. And no, it's not really too much of an exaggeration to say that, because exactly as predicted, the government has pushed for greater and greater and greater coverage for the DNA database until we arrive at this state of affairs. The government is under fire from civil liberties campaigners over plans to keep innocent people's DNA profiles for life. The Home Office announced proposals that could see information on anyone arrested for terror offences kept indefinitely, even if they are released without charge or cleared of any wrongdoing by a jury. Under the plans, senior police officers will review each case every two years on national security grounds. Shami Chakrabarti, the director of human rights group Liberty, said the new proposals are simply unworkable. I'm afraid that I think the new twist on terror suspects' DNA just makes this look even more like party politics than rational policy making. This will never see the light of day, but it's a way of telling the country and other political parties that we, the government, are tougher on law and order generally and terror in particular. The policy document is a partial retreat in the face of public concern over plans to hold the DNA of thousands of innocent people for more than a decade. Adults arrested but not convicted of serious crimes will have their profiles held for six years instead of 12, but the proposals have been toughened up for young offenders who will have their profiles held for five years after a first conviction. Just in case you need that repeated for the gravity of what was just revealed to sink in, that's right, the UK government has unilaterally declared that it has the right to collect and store the genetic information of any citizen on the flimsiest of pretexts, and then to archive that information for eternity, even if that person is innocent 
of any crime. Are you getting the idea that the DNA database might not have just been a crime-fighting tool after all? Well, unfortunately for the citizens of the world, this is not merely a British phenomenon. In country after country after country after country, everywhere around the world, simultaneously, we see governments moving to bring in the legislation to institute these types of databases and or to drastically expand the databases that already, in many countries, exist. And Australia is no exception. Recently, I had the chance to talk to Greg Nicoletos of WeThePeopleWillNotBeChip.com about this push to collect DNA from citizens on the pretext of fighting crime and how this is a truly global phenomenon and one that also affects him in Australia. Um, I'll give you some some real cases. And, and look, this is a global phenomenon. So... Um, when you actually track the trends, I mean, you know, th this is um, uh, an agenda that has been played out um, with systematic precision. So wh whether you're looking at Ireland or Italy or, you know, Botswana, Malaysia, the UK, which is obviously one of the major um, advocates for it, I, I can give you some real-world examples of what is actually happening in Australia where and the databases that we have out here, which is actually controlled by a company called CrimTrack, um, our databases are basically nearly full. We're actually looking at actually extending um, and enlarging the size of the actual database. So how they actually do it, it's a case of, you know, now, you know, generally police when, um, you know, to extract DNA, you, you would really have to be... Um, either prosecuted or there would <clears throat> excuse me or there would be um, good reason that the, for the DNA to actually be requested from you that you know you're basically have either committed a crime or you have actually been charged with a crime where we stand in Australia something as simple as jaywalking actually now gives the police the right um, and this is within, you know, within the laws. It is actually passed through Parliament, and it's always shrouded within, you know, the, the terror legislation. So, um, utilising the same old Trojan horse, if, if, for example, you know, myself, I went to an actual protest or to a rally, um, the, the police have got these wide sweeping um, um, powers. That, that can they basically, you know, extract one's, you know, saliva, have a saliva swab or the like um, to the point now where, it, it, you know, a, a policeman can, can really do it at will. But more than that, not they can only do it at will, but they also have the legislation and the power to actually do it where from a civil liberties perspective, you really have no leg to stand on. And it's gotten even worse. In my state, for example, the, the, the government has actually handed out um, swab kits to the actual bus drivers. So, you know, the, 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 the bus drivers that actually drive the Queensland um, state buses have actually been given DNA test kits. Um, so if any commuter is actually spitting as part of their role as a bus driver, it is their duty to then go collect the spit um, which then ends up on a database. So, I mean, you know, it's 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 really out of control. But 
But as mentioned, James, I mean, th this is the same case, you know, in Ireland. You know, Italy has basically, you know, just recently established a DNA database. Um, you have the, you know, European Union, which has basically asked for a common DNA data bank across um, the whole of Europe. So it, it's, it, it's, it is a global phenomenon. But what I can say in our country specifically um, we have at least half a million people on the actual database in a population of only 20 million. So the, you know, the reach and the penetration is just massive, absolutely massive, and getting worse. As frankly ridiculous as it is to think of bus drivers scraping passenger saliva in order to get their DNA samples, it is equally ridiculous to imagine that this is being implemented simultaneously around the world simply for the purposes of law enforcement. If you need a specific example as to why that might be the case, well, we can take a look, for example, at this article, which was posted on wethepeoplewillnotbechip.com from late last year. Israeli scientists discover a way to counterfeit DNA. First biometrics, then DNA can be cloned. Chipping will be proposed as the solution after this. Quote, Israeli scientists have shown it is possible to fabricate DNA evidence, according to an article published in the New York Times on Tuesday. The findings could possibly call into question the credibility of DNA as evidence in criminal cases. In their tests, the scientists fabricated blood and saliva samples that contained DNA taken from a different person, the New York Times reported. The article states that the scientists also could take a DNA profile in a database and use it to make a DNA sample to match the profile without needing any tissue from the person. End quote. But the people who are running and promoting and pimping the DNA databases don't want you to find out about stories like that one. Nor do they want you to cogitate too much on stories like this one from the Daily Mail just three weeks ago, 4th of February 2010. DNA database is causing suicides, MPs are warned. Quote, Keeping profiles of the innocent on the D DNA database causes immense distress and has even led to suicide, the pioneer of fingerprinting technology warned MPs yesterday. Sir Alec Jeffries, who invented the use of DNA to fight crime, said storing these records could lead to an unfair presumption of guilt. The DNA database for England and Wales holds over 5 million profiles, with around 1 million having no criminal conviction. Sir Alec said he had been frequently contacted by innocent people on the database to say how distressed they were, and he called for their records to be removed immediately. He told the Commons Home Affairs Select Committee he had been frequently contacted by innocent people on the database to say how distressed they were. In July 2008, Robert Chong, 41, committed suicide because of the shame of being put on the database after he was falsely accused of exposing himself to a woman, he said. A cursory check of CCTV tapes would have demonstrated his innocence, his only interaction with the woman had been when she swore at him on the station concourse. Mr. Chon, 41, later became withdrawn and told his mother, I'm on the criminal database now, I have got a record, before killing himself in June 2008. End quote. But the official line is that the DNA database is for the good of society because it will prevent crime. 
even if it contains the DNA of people who have never committed a crime. Well, we can see through that, but the most chilling part of this is not simply that governments are ramrodding this legislation through against a tidal wave of backlash and fury from the public. Obviously, we see no such fury. In fact, few people are really aware of the DNA database's existence, and to the extent that they are, it is merely something that exists out there and not something that they think concerns them. But perhaps the most chilling part of this is that, like every other type of technological enslavement that comes along, this one is also going to be sexed up and sold to us in the form not of a jackbooted thug sticking a swab in your cheek, but something that you'll actually volunteer to do, because the benefits are so outstanding. Six billion people around the globe, from every imaginable background, with incredible diversity. Yet, despite these differences, we're more similar and more connected than you might think. Who were our ancestors? Where do we come from? And how did we get here? In April 2005, National Geographic and IBM teamed up to find out. I wanted to draw people together, to make people realize that we're all part of an extended family and that our DNA connects all of us into a very tight-knit group. With support from the Waite Family Foundation, we launched the Genographic Project, a massive five-year effort to trace our DNA back tens of thousands of years to our earliest ancestors in East Africa. We're collaborating with indigenous tribes, plus hundreds of thousands of other people around the world, gathering DNA samples to map our human history. We need to create the world's largest database of genotypes. You're talking about sampling hundreds of thousands of people around the world and generating all this genetic information. We need to find a partner. It does take a great deal of innovation to pull off this mapping of the journey you know, of humankind. We provide the technology infrastructure to gather the data and bring it in. That's right. For the low, low price of $99.95, you can now order your participation kit for the Genographic Project brought to you by National Geographic and IBM. With a simple and painless cheek swab, you can sample your own DNA and submit it to the lab. We run one test per participation kit. We will test either your mitochondrial DNA, which is passed down each generation from mother to child and reveals your direct maternal ancestry, or your Y chromosome, males only, which is passed down from father to son and reveals your direct paternal ancestry. You choose which test you would like administered. Genographic.nationalgeographic.com And if you want to participate, by all means, go and hand over the very fundamental building blocks that make you what you are and hand them over to a company to do with as it likes. Because you're putting your entire faith in this wonderful and benevolent organization to handle the most sensitive information that you could possibly give to anyone... And I'm sure you have good reason for trusting them, because they even have a note on privacy on their website. Quote, To ensure the privacy of participants, we have built an anonymous analysis process. Your participation kit will be mailed with a randomly generated, non-sequential genographic participant ID number. Although we will have mailed a participation kit to your address, we do not know the random code included in the kit. When you send in your DNA sample with your consent form, they will only be identified by your GPID. 
Therefore, your cheek cells will be analyzed completely anonymously. End quote. So just going on the assumption that there might be something more to this than merely the collection of data about where an our ancient ancestors may have traveled, what on earth are National Geographic and IBM doing collaborating on a project like this, and what possible things in their history might point to a different agenda? Once again, Greg Nicoletos of WeThePeopleWillNotBeChipped.com. What I found comical about the, the IBM and National Geographic Alliance is, you know, I'm seeing National Geographic actually getting now more involved in um, far outside their target market. I mean, when you actually look at the last um, cover of National Geographic, they were actually promoting um, the merger of man into machine. And there's also been some other articles over the last six months to a year where They've promoted, you know, the surveillance society and 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 really promoted CCTV to be this, you know, the the, the one stop solution that will, you know, stop crime and you know we will all live in, in world peace and terrible subside and and the like. So um, that will be actually be one of my smaller projects where um, you know who who is National Geographic really? That's that's the question we need to ask because the 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 current um, projects that they're taking to market for for their reader goes far beyond the scope of what National Geographic should actually be focusing on. And, um, and and when you see them teaming up with, you know, at the end of the day, Nazi war criminals, which is which is IBM, and, and, and people need to be aware that w when, when you're looking at IBM, you basically are looking at, at a company that um, is guilty of war atrocities. Um, and, you know, many, many nations and many people have actually sued IBM, um, but nothing has come of it because, um, as Edwin Black actually mentioned, who was the author of IBM and the Holocaust, is, is IBM is, is larger than nations. They are a titanic multinational company. And um, as we're moving into this, you know, this global grid with, you know, the Internet of Things and the smart grid, which is obviously being promoted through climate change and the like, um, IBM is one of the few companies that can actually pull off this agenda where governments start relying on these tech giants um, to basically pull the smart grid into place. So you can say that IBM actually does operate, you know, not only with governments, but to the point that governments are totally reliant on IBM technology. Oh, but Greg, come on. That was that was the past and now IBM is a wonderful corporation that only cares about people and they, they want to map the human genome and, and participate in the human genome project because they love us so much and want to tell us what's right. And I, I mean I really want to know how my family migrated from you know, from Greece and over to Australia and and yeah, and, yeah. and this is the point. This is the point. I mean, what, what are people giving up? I mean, you're sending your DNA to a, a, a company that is guilty of war crimes. And what do they do? They give you, what, a flowchart of where, you know, grandfather Nicoletis had migrated from. I don't know whether I've got Italian blood in me. I don't know. But, I mean, what is the payoff? But th this is the point. IBM wasn't silly enough to go into market as IBM. That they are hid behind National Geographic, and National Geographic, to the average person out there, um, you know, is a defender of you know the 
the the animals and the species and you know they, they do good work and you know and their publication is is a good read so um you know if that doesn't set alarm bells off that a company basically has to hide behind another company um to basically um take your, your genome or, or your dna to map your genome um that should send alarm bells ringing but as you mentioned james in this day and age pe people don't have that much time so the, you know, you, all you need to really do is just scratch through the veneer and you'll quite often find the monster in the closet. For those who may be unaware of IBM's, shall we say, darker history in World War II, I would highly suggest that you check out IBM and the Holocaust at ibmandtheholocaust.com, a groundbreaking work of Holocaust literature by Edwin Black, on the roles that IBM Hollerith punch card machines played in automating the Holocaust and really enabling the slaughter on a scale that would have been inconceivable in the days of pen and paper. And anyone who does read that excellent work will understand that this was not merely something that IBM did blindly or merely in the interest of profit. It was something that, in fact, IBM was highly involved in. And perhaps the best way to get the overall perspective of the way that plays into the larger agenda is to watch an excellent documentary like One Mainframe to Rule Them All, which was put out by Greg Nicoletos of We the People Will Not Be Chipped last year. But just to get an idea of how important a player IBM is in the emerging DNA technologies field, and just how far along they are in their research, one can turn to a story like this one from the 5th of October 2009 on foxnews.com. IBM builds barcode reader for DNA. Quote, Imagine a world where medicine is guaranteed not to cause adverse reactions because it's designed for an individual's DNA. Imagine a diet tailored to the precise speed of a person's metabolism. Using a little microelectronics, a little physics, and no small dose of biology, IBM has brought that futuristic world a little bit closer. The DNA Transistor is a project from IBM Research that aims to advance personalized medicine by making it simpler and much cheaper to read an individual's unique DNA sequence, the special combination of proteins that makes you unlike anyone else. The technology isn't finished yet, but its potential is tantalizing enough that IBM wanted to share it with the world, and the company claims researchers are making progress. Essentially a barcode reader for genes, the DNA transistor is part technique and part device. It consists of a 3 nanometer wide hole, known as a nanopore, in a silicon microchip. A sensor in the pore can read DNA and determine its unique makeup. The technologies that make reading DNA fast, cheap, and widely available have the potential to revolutionize biomedical research and herald an era of personalized medicine, said IBM research scientist Gustavo Stolovitsky. Ultimately, I could improve the quality of medical care by identifying patients who will gain the greatest benefit from a particular medicine and those who are most at risk of adverse reaction. End quote. And exactly as this kind of technology can be used for the furthering of mankind, it can also be used as another step towards the locking of the door of the prison cell that will enslave humanity for eternity. If you think that I am resorting to hyperbole in order to make my point, I assure you that I am not. 
Let's begin looking at the agenda that is really driving this mad grab for DNA that we see taking place all around the world simultaneously. And let's do so by taking a look at one of the most disturbing stories that has recently come to light on this issue in the controlled corporate media. Blood samples taken from every Texas newborn. Mixed with new concerns about Big Brother, tonight Austin News investigates the once secret collection of blood. A new law gives parents the right to have leftover blood samples destroyed, but a loophole is raising some privacy concerns. KXAN's Nancy Wilson is live with a story all new at 10. Well, every year about 400,000 babies are born in Texas. Now, before they're discharged from the hospital, they leave something behind for the state a sample of their DNA. Now the blood spots are used to screen for a list of life-threatening diseases. Now this is a copy of a blood spot. Now while in the hospital the baby's heel will be pricked and five drops of blood are collected. A couple weeks later another five drops of blood are taken at the pediatrician's office and sent to the state. Now the newborn screening process only used one or two of the spots. So what happens to the remaining samples? Well the state keeps them. The problem? They've been doing it for years, unbeknownst to parents. This is Joaquin. When he was born a year ago, his mother never dreamed his blood would be the focus of a federal lawsuit. I didn't even realize that the um, heel stick and the blood draw had occurred in the hospital. State law requires that blood be taken from every baby born in Texas to screen for a variety of diseases. I agree with the newborn testing. I'm glad to know that my son doesn't have... Um, you know, any kind of metabolic disorder. But then... I just couldn't believe it. She learned the state, without her knowledge or consent, was keeping her son's leftover blood samples. It made me really mad that, that nobody asked me whether they could keep my son's DNA. The state didn't ask any of the parents whose children were born between 2002 and 2009 for permission to bank the millions of blood spots collected under the newborn screening program. The blood spots are valuable for use in research. Andrea is supportive of medical research, but... The government still has to ask. They can't just take it. And everyone has the right to make that decision for themselves. The state disagreed and said parents didn't have the right. The minute I thought about this, I thought this is something that we needed to get into litigation and get it stopped. Harrington filed suit on behalf of Andrea and other parents. The Texas legislature responded. They passed a new law that allows the state to keep and use the samples for research, but requires parents to be notified and allows parents to request that their child's blood spots be destroyed. But it's not as simple as checking off a box when the samples are taken. Parents must fill out this special form. Then the state has 60 days to destroy the leftover blood spots. But even if you request your child's blood samples be destroyed, there's nothing in the law that forces the state to destroy the information collected from the samples. The form says identifying information won't be released without parents' consent unless otherwise provided by law. Patient privacy expert Dr. Deborah Peel says those words, unless otherwise provided by law, create a huge loophole. It's not secret. It means that they can share it and use it for research, for public health. There are many laws that allow the use of samples like newborn blood samples for public health uses and screening and so forth. So, no, you are not protected. The law allows the stored samples to be used in research if approved by what's called an institutional review board. That board is supposed to safeguard patients' privacy. But when we asked to attend a meeting, we were told they were not open to the public. 
The review board appointed to approve any research using the leftover samples is made up of almost all state employees. Jim Harrington says that makes the whole process questionable. This is a farce is because you're calling people from inside the agency uh, who an agency that has part of a role to play in this entire transaction and asking the employees of the agency that has a vested interest to pass judgment on the agency, right? Now then what are the chances of that happening? That's something we won't know because the new law allows the program to operate in almost complete secrecy. The public doesn't get to know how the blood samples will be used or what kind of research is being conducted. The new law specifically says state employees and contractors can't be forced to testify or turn over any reports or records even under subpoena. Every time of course the government does that and is not open and clear and transparent uh, it raises flags all over the place about what's really going on, you know, and what are they really up to. And is there a larger agenda here uh, that they don't want to tell us about? And that's enough to convince Andrea Bellino to just say no. For me and my family, no, you can't have our DNA. Now, so far, more than 8,000 other families have made that same decision, asking the state to destroy their child's leftover blood samples. So, Robert and Leslie, what do the state lawmakers have to say? Well, tomorrow night we talk with a legislator who sponsored the bill that's keeping this program secret and find out how other lawmakers will be taking a closer look at the program. Nancy, thanks for that. We do have much more information for you on this issue on our website right now. You'll find the text of the new law, copies of the forms provided to parents, the form if you wish to have your child's blood samples destroyed, along with some federal legislation introduced by President Obama when he was a senator that would have created a national DNA database. Now that was a report that aired on the local Austin NBC affiliate in November of 2009, so perhaps people in the Austin area might be forgiven for thinking that this is some sort of relatively new phenomenon. But if they think so, that's only because they haven't been paying attention to the very small, admittedly, releases that have been made over the years about this type of program that's going on, of course, not only in Texas and not only in various states around the United States, but all around the world. There has been some information circulating around about these types of programs where the government will come in and take your baby's blood for DNA samples that are kept in DNA databases without the parent's knowledge or consent. The information about these databases has been going around for years, but has been incredibly spotty. So in order to compile some of that information, in February of last year, I wrote a report called Announcing the DNA Control Grid, which tried to bring attention to this issue. I'd like to read from that report from the 27th of February 2009 on CorbettReport.com. Quote, Recent weeks have seen a string of revelations in mainstream publications that there are plans for a North American Union, a world government, and a new world order, including a world central bank with the power to knock heads if nations refuse to surrender their authority to an elite group of international bankers, exactly as we predicted. Add to these startling admissions the Austin American statesman's recent discovery of the state of Texas's practice of keeping blood collected at birth for scientific research purposes without the knowledge or consent of parents. As bad as it sounds, the Statesman article is in itself a whitewash. The blood is collected not only for scientific research purposes, but also for a DNA database, which in itself is slowly being announced to the public. The blood, or more importantly, the genetic information it contains, is stored not for a few months, as the article implies, but indefinitely. 
It is not stored by state or public laboratories, but private companies. It is not merely a statewide program or even a nationwide program, but an international one. It has been in operation for over 40 years, and now, thanks to recent biomedical advances, the public is starting to learn that their very DNA may be the property of a few private companies. When stated in one concise paragraph, the monstrous nature of such a system is laid bare. When introduced piece by piece over a number of years by well-meaning but ill-informed local reporters, however, such a system can be accepted by the public. This, of course, is part of the process of indoctrination by which any unthinkable idea, such as world government by an elite group of bankers or DNA databases under private control, can be made to seem a perfectly natural development. The pieces of the DNA control grid puzzle lie in numerous mainstream reports over the past decade and trace a secret Orwellian history of the past 40 years which is only now coming to light. It involves the intertwined stories of an international DNA database, involuntary blood collection, private DNA ownership, and ultimately a biometric control grid that has been the dream of every eugenicist since the days of Francis Galton. The topic of DNA collection by the government usually focuses on criminal databases. The infamous UK DNA database is in fact just one of many such national databases, justified by their use in helping law enforcement solve cases by recourse to genetic forensics. Of course, the real problem is not that databases of this sort fail to acknowledge the widespread, systemic, and ultimately inevitable abuses of these law enforcement tools. The problem is that these arguments miss the point entirely by arguing only the limited benefits and drawbacks of DNA databases for law enforcement. The truth is that governments around the world have been collecting, analyzing, and storing the blood and genetic material of all newborn babies without bothering to inform their parents of this fact for 40 years. The article in The Statesman gives a limited, narrow glimpse into this program. A much more revealing look is given in a shocking article from the Australian periodical The Age, which calmly reported in 2004 that dried blood samples taken from newborns in Victoria are tested and stored by Genetic Health Services Victoria, a company set up 16 years ago. It is paid by the state government to do the tests, yet believes it owns the cards, which date from 1965. The most disturbing part of the article is that the private company contracted by the government to analyze and store the blood in fact claims to own the samples themselves and all the genetic information on them. While the ownership of Victoria's cards has not been tested, an internal company document obtained by The Age says, This newborn screening card is the property of Genetic Health Services Victoria. Access is in accordance with privacy legislation. The company owns the card. It is almost impossible to comprehend the scale of what is being perpetrated on the public without their knowledge or consent. In effect, every person born in Australia, the United States, the UK, Canada, and numerous other countries around the world are leaving their genetic code to the goodwill of the private companies contracted to analyze and store these samples, which were taken without their knowledge. The public outrage engendered by Tony Blair's plea for everyone to be forced to give a DNA sample to the authorities should be multiplied many thousands of times in this case. Everyone has, in fact, been forced to give their DNA samples to the government from the very moment of their birth. What, in fact, amounts to one of the most egregious violations of basic privacy rights in the history of human civilization is being calmly reported by local reporters in region after region. 
none of them able to or willing to connect the dots into the larger picture. It is left to organizations like GeneWatch and legal scholars to begin to examine the implications of these breathtaking governmental intrusions into the very bodies of their citizens. Those interested in the larger picture are encouraged to research further into the topics of eugenics, biometrics, and what happens when governments start tracking their citizens and using them as human guinea pigs. End quote. Indeed, once again we peel another layer of the onion and find that yes, the darker ideology that lies underneath is eugenics and the desire of a few to control the genetic destiny of humanity. But in order to implement that agenda of control over the very genetic code that makes us what we are, this technology first has to be touted for the wonderful things it can do for our children. It's the stuff of childhood memories. Mom saying goodbye, kids heading off to summer camp. But here in Chongqing, China, this isn't any average camp. All of these kids, aged 3 to 12, have already taken a DNA test that scientists say will help identify their genetic gifts. Over the next week, they will be scrutinized in environments from sports to art. And along with scientific results, observers will tell parents what talents they should nurture. This way, we can really understand our kids and help them develop, says one father. It's better to develop her talents earlier rather than later, says another mother. Before this test existed, it would take so long. Now we can find out more quickly and raise her based on what her natural talents are. Scientists claim this simple saliva swab collects a sample of more than 10,000 cells, enabling them to isolate 11 different genes that reveal critical information about the child's IQ, emotional control, focus, memory, athletic ability, and more. But it is a very, very short distance from clamoring for this type of genetic screening ourselves to having it shoved down our throats. The information held on you and your children will be used to stop crimes being committed even before they've taken place. If we're not prepared to predict and intervene far more early than there are children that are going to grow up in families that we know perfectly well are completely dysfunctional and the kids a few years down the line are going to be a menace to society and actually a threat to themselves. I'm interested in how early because a lot of the evidence suggests you need to be getting in there while the child is still in nappies frankly. Or pre-birth even. Or pre-birth even. Or pre-birth even. Or pre-birth even. The potential remarkable wonders of a society that is using scientific progress and knowledge in order to unlock the potential of humanity is only equaled by the potential horrors of a society that is being ruled by a sick clique of psychopathic individuals for their own benefit, and who desperately want to wield technological developments for the purposes of maintaining their control over society. The pre-birth screening databases and other such draconian measures openly lusted after by our psychopathic leaders are only the first steps towards a brave new world type of society where humanity is controlled and every individual human being's life is determined by their genetic code. 
This agenda, however, is still in its infancy, and there is still time to change the path that we are headed down. I strongly suggest that everyone out there finds out about the laws pertaining to DNA databases in their own jurisdictions, whether that be infant databases for newborn screening or criminal databases, and to find out those groups that are working in your area to stop, change, or deflect that agenda. One example that has high visibility online and seems to be an excellent organization providing quality information for people in Minnesota is Citizens Council on Healthcare at cchconline.org. But wherever you are, please find out about the organizations that are working in your area and help them in their efforts to educate the public about the real issues involved in the databasing of our genetic information. Because the information and the access to that information, which is represented by such databases, is nothing less than a blueprint for humanity, and, unfortunately, a blueprint for control. For once we have surrendered our DNA, what else is there for us to lose? That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, urging you to join me next week for episode 119 of the Corbett Report, Lessons in Resistance, Whistleblowing. We'll buy you drinks, we'll buy your clothes, we'll sell you crap, we'll charge you back, we'll buy big guns, we'll rock a 